Welcome to the Journey to Midwifery podcast. This is a podcast for and about midwives. This is the place where midwives come to share their stories. I am your host, Amber Wilson, a midwife myself. I felt called to this journey of sharing the stories of midwives around the globe, and I hope you will find as much joy listening as I do interviewing. Remember, life is about the journey. This season, I'm trying something new by having on guest hosts to interview and host the podcast. My first guest, who will be a regular, is Jamie. She is the founder and creator of the blog, A Midwife Nation. If you haven't checked out amidwifenation.com, you will find all sorts of resources, templates, and education and information to help you in your practice, or if you are expecting or trying to get pregnant, go check it out. Well, welcome to the Journey to Midwifery podcast. My name is Jamie Gurton, and I am guest hosting today with Cynthia. Cynthia, if you would introduce yourself, tell us where you are, but also your credentials, and then we're going to dive right into your journey. Sure. My name is Cynthia Jaffe. I live and worked on Whidbey Island, which is in Washington State, for 30-some years. Um, I'm a Washington State licensed midwife and uh, began as a un- unlicensed midwife and then went to school and graduated in 1990. Okay, now do you still live in Washington? You said lived, are you still still in the same place that you practiced? Yes, I am. Okay, very good. I looked it up on the map for those that don't know and you're very close to Victoria in the very Northwest corner of Washington state. Yes, we are. <laughs> yes. Okay. And then as far as your journey, tell me, I read a little bit too. It sounds like you had some overseas training that was maybe your impetus for getting into midwifery. I think it was Jerusalem, but I'm so curious to hear that background. So start at the beginning and then share, share kind of what you you feel is, you know, the story that you'd like for, for people to hear. Yeah. Um, well, in 1981, my husband and I moved to Jerusalem and and uh, we had no children at the time. And it had fulfilled a sort of a lifelong dream for me to live there. And we really had planned to make it our our home for the rest of our lives. And different factors came up that made that not quite as feasible later on. But we did spend seven years there. And I had my children there. And, um, and I remember when I was pregnant with my first child that I saw midwives and I had never really even thought about midwives, but it was the standard of care as it is in many countries in the world. And and I don't know if you've ever met Israelis, they can be quite brusque. And I remember talking to my mom or writing her and I said, oh, I'm seeing a midwife. She was like, oh, do you see a doctor too? I said, oh, I don't know. And so I went to my next appointment. I said, do I see a doctor? And she said, why? Are you sick? What's the matter with you? It's like, oh my, no, I'm sick. So it was a very uh, low risk, healthy way. I never had ultrasounds. It was really just, um, you know, it was good care and just with the assumption that you would breastfeed and you would have a vaginal birth. And um, and also that the country itself was super um, respectful and um, giving towards pregnant women. I never got on a bus where I wasn't immediately given a seat and, and so there was also this just um, 
feeling of that you were really contributing by being pregnant and people were really excited about the fact that you were having a baby. And, um, and I remember that I can really thank my good friend, Amy, who was pregnant a couple of years before me. And like many midwives of my generation, she gave me a copy of Spiritual Midwifery. And I just remember this feeling of, I knew it. I knew it didn't have to be terrible. Every book I was reading was just basically, here's how you get through it. <clears throat> it wasn't going to enrich your life. It wasn't going to give you anything. You just had to like breathe this, you know, method and you would get through it. And, and here was this book saying, you know, it can change your life for the better. And, and so I read that book many times, cover to cover, and then um, had my son had a lovely birth with midwives. And um, as I was getting ready to push, this young student midwife came in and she was American like I was, and we started chatting and um, and she was the one that ultimately caught my baby. And we moved towns maybe a month or so after our son was born. And, and I kept looking at this woman and thinking, that woman looks so familiar. And then one day it just dawned on me, oh, that was the midwife that was there and so I stopped her and we are fast friends to this day but I would find myself waiting for her to come back tell me everything oh this woman almost gave birth on the toilet oh my god you know and and um and then one day she said to me uh there's an American woman she's doing home births and she's looking for an assistant and I just felt on the one hand I felt the heavens open and on the other hand I felt that I was so unworthy of this great gift um but I did take her up on it and met Elisa, who had moved to Jerusalem and was delivering babies. And um, and that was really my first sort of entrance into midwifery. It was, I hadn't read a, maybe I had Miles midwifery, but when I think back on my formal education, it was, it was pretty fear-based. And when I think back on the way I entered, it was, it was not, it was totally open. And I, she was a great teacher, Lisa. She wasn't, you know, a panicky person, I guess. And so um, so I went to these births with her and they were just wonderful and lovely. And, and then I got to school and it was kind of an, oh my gosh, moment of like, well, that could have happened and that could happen. And uh, so I had to, I had to sort of learn that. And then when I became a midwife, I had to kind of unlearn that again. And and I was very grateful for the fact that I had started in this role, apprenticeship role with a, an experienced midwife. And I just had, you know, no fear going into it at all. That's amazing. How many years were you in Jerusalem? Were you always in Jerusalem or did, did you go to other towns or cities nearby? Oh, I stayed in Jerusalem um, about six and a half, seven years. So then I had a daughter and I was able to have Shelly, my friend, the student midwife as my midwife and a birthing center. And that was lovely. And then about when our kids were three and one and a half, um, we made the decision to move back. And I'd already been in contact with the, what was then Seattle Midwifery School and decided that was my path in life. And, um, and so when we came back to the United States, I did a year of prerequisites and then started school um, in 87, I guess, All right? Maybe it's 88. 
what was, well, I have one more question. Your first birth, was that in a hospital in Jerusalem? And then you went to the birth center. I, my own yes. birth? Your first birth. Yeah. yeah, it was a hospital birth. You know, there really wasn't a home birth community. And and I was already sort of getting used to the fact that I was going to have a midwife. Um, so even though I um, love spiritual midwifery, there was, nobody was talking about home births or doing home births. Um, so, yeah. That's so interesting. Births abroad are, are fascinating to me. I feel like the United States has so much to learn about birth from Europe in general, but also some other countries where midwifery is the standard. So even, even well, you know, 30 years ago, we were still. Yeah. Well, I mean, I some of it was pretty not, I mean, I gave birth in a room full of women giving birth. I mean, I was separated. The woman next to me was having twins. We were separated by a curtain. And uh, I remember talking to her afterwards. I said, oh, was I loud? I'm so sorry. She's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> he said, my last birth, I gave birth in the bomb shelter. There was some air raid site. <laughs> like, I mean, everybody was, was pretty um, matter of fact. I think I want to say it was, it was, uh, yeah. And actually being a midwife there was like being a plumber. I mean, it wasn't like this. I mean, when I came to the States and I became a midwife in the early 80s, late 80s, early 90s, there was still this kind of mystique and aura and, oh, you know, and I remember thinking, what? No, I just like, I mean, to me, it, it didn't um, ever have that to me. It was just like a calling. If I could do this, I'd be happy the rest of my life. But it, it was still relatively new. I mean, I meet people who had never heard of midwives and didn't know what they did. And so and then when you moved back to Washington state at that time, what was the culture for midwifery? Was it still more underground? There was definitely midwifery school because you talked about how that was your plan and where you trained, yeah. but I'm always curious what the community and the culture within the state and the, the cities are. It was very progressive. It still is very progressive. I mean, I, um, I'm not sure what number class, when they first started licensing midwives in Washington state, the very first woman was, I think was a woman, was a Japanese midwife and she got license number one and I was license number 126. So I think I was the eighth class, maybe 10th class through Midw Seattle Midwifery School. And so there was a thriving midwifery community. We, there were many midwives to apprentice with, you know, to do your numbers. Um, we weren't, you know, there were most insurance, insurance companies did not cover us as licensed midwives. We were able to uh, become Medicaid providers. So a lot of us did, although when I first started, they didn't cover home birth, but would cover a birth in a birthing center, which is was to me the, the impetus to build a birth center because I live in a rural area that's um, has quite a high Medicaid population. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it's kind of that thing when you're surrounded by midwives, it seems like everybody knows what it is. And, um, and, and I'm sure that was my reality in 1989 was that everybody knew about midwives because everybody I knew knew about midwives, but I, I'm not sure how pervasive it was outside of the, you know, the bigger cities. But when I came to my Island, there was a midwife here and she started as a lay midwife and um, went back to school and got licensed and, and was moving to a bigger city off Island. So my community was, they knew about home births. They had had home births. I didn't really, 
have to do as much educating as I thought I would because they were just waiting for me, you know, to keep delivering their babies. So that that, that made it easier. Pardon me? That makes such a difference when the community already accepts that home birth is a very normal place and, and thing and way to have your baby. It, it makes a total difference. I think there are many communities where that is not the case. So that's a, a huge blessing that that was already your community. It was. And there were actually two family practice doctors that did home births like in the 70s and 80s when nobody was doing home births. And they were just really interesting men. And um, and when I when I set up my practice, one of them came to me and he said, I really want to give you this trunk that we took to our births. And you know, I'm passing it on to you. It was really lovely. And I opened it up and there was like a pair of forceps in there and these pudendal needles that were, I was just like, oh my God, what did you guys do with these birds? A vacuum extractor. I was like, anyway, it was just like, did I don't you, know what they were doing. But. Was it one of those gifts where you accept it and then you think I'm never going to use this. I'm just going to put them over here. Yeah. Teaching tools. Like these are forceps. This is what the women would be like. Oh, I don't want that. That looks terrible. You know, oh it was a nice gesture, but it was so out of my scope of practice that it was just kind of oh, wow. interesting. Now about your school, how long was the training in the school and, and how many births did you attend? People are always curious what those training pathways and, and numbers are a very big thing today for midwifery students. But was that something that you still had to achieve minimum standards? In the yeah, absolutely. So Seattle Midwifery School was a 27 month program. It was divided into a um, now I'm, I think it was 12 months um, didactic and 15 months clinical. And you really didn't do much crossover. So you were in class three days a week. Um, and then you'd start to observe in a clinic, things like that. But they really, at that time, the philosophy was to give us a basis, a basic knowledge before we hit a preceptorship. And now um, I'm a was a preceptor for many years. Um, it seems like the idea is you get student midwives right in the into clinical settings right away. Um, they don't know very much if they're really just starting often, and you know you're you're going to kind of um, segue your clinical what you're showing them clinically with what they're learning, um, you know, in school. But at that time, that wasn't the philosophy. The philosophy was to get this sort of basis. Um, and then go out and, you know, of course, we continue the, um, the didactic during our clinical time, but not as much. I mean, it was really focused during that 12 months. And it was 50 observed and 50 managed births. And I think it was 900 hours of prenatal care. Um, but mostly that was also set by the state of Washington because there was no CPM. So we were just going to be licensed by Washington State. And that was their requirement. Well, the, the requirements I don't think have changed very much. I think they're pretty similar. I think they've been less and for Washington to have set them that high 30 years ago. I think that that was yeah. probably good foresight on their, their, their part. Now in the schooling sector there, is that the only school for midwifery that was available or were there other programs or could you have done an apprenticeship or was that the, the primary option? Yeah. There was, um, well, John, we have John Bastier University, which is a naturopathic college, and they had um, 
a postgraduate degree in midwifery. So you had to do your ND first, your naturopathic doctor degree, and then you could add midwifery on. So I couldn't have gone to that program without having done an ND first, naturopathic doctor degree. Um, there was no like CNM um, program through the University of Washington. And there is um, this funny little thing when they, when they made the midwifery law in Washington state, there was a large contingent of what we used to call lay Christian midwives. And these are midwives that felt drawn. They had self-study groups. They delivered mostly women in their church, which was the experience of the midwife who was here before I came. She felt drawn and just started delivering babies and, and reading. And they would go to study groups with other midwives all around the state and teach each other IVs and um, and there's a clause in our law that's called the gratuitous services law, which says that anybody can be a midwife as long as you don't charge for your services. So you can hang out a sign and you can go into people's homes and deliver babies as long as you don't get paid, it's legal. And actually that law has caused us a lot of issues <laughs> as, as we've grown, but anyway, so I could have done that. Which That's is, still was, law today. It is. Okay. It is. And unfortunately, um, the only part that we intersect is with the complaint process. So if a complaint comes against an unlicensed midwife or a, a gratuitous services midwife, our department investigates it, which means we carry the cost. And so our license fees are quite high because in, in our state, you, you have to, every group has to support their own division. So the nursing license is $20 because there's thousands of nurses. Well, there's not thousands of midwives. So our, we get money from the government, uh, Washington state, because we, otherwise our licenses would be three or $4,000. I mean, we just can't, it makes it unfeasible. So, um, so that's really when we sort of inter intersect with them. But, um, you know, I've met quite a few over the years. They're dedicated people and, and committed to giving great care. Um, but yes, yeah, so they can operate that way. And there was something called midwife and training, which had never been tested, but it was this idea that if you were a midwife in California and came to Washington, that if you could show equivalency that you'd done a number of births, you'd done all the same schoolwork that they you could sit for the Washington state licensing exam without going to school. And that was finally challenged by someone later, like in the late 90s. And then and then more midwives were able to come in under that midwife and training. I don't know why they called it that, but um, designation and get licensed that way. Oh, that's so interesting. And then after you completed your program, you said you basically had a community and a birth center almost waiting for you. Is that what you transitioned to? What happened after the graduation? Um, after graduation, you actually have to go down to our state capitol and sit for the licensing exam. And so um, I did and passed. And I had worked in a birth center um, and saw that there was definitely this population, especially in the early 90s, that they didn't quite relate to home birth, but they really related to a birthing center. And they really saw it as, as this middle ground between home and hospital. And I would always say, 
there's no difference. I, there's nothing at the birth center that I don't bring to your home, but culturally we go somewhere to have our babies and they felt safer or they lived with many people for whatever reason. And also because this, I wanted to serve the Medicaid population and, and the, the amount that they didn't cover was almost a thousand dollars. So some midwives would just do the birth for the, you know, prenatal care, which was like $468. I mean, it was, it was a big heart decision to make, to do that. And I had a mortgage and family and children. And I decided, well, I will build this birth center. So we have 10 acres. We bought 10 acres and, um, and the back five acres was woods. And that's where I put the birth center. Um, and it, was a long labor of love. It took um, a lot of, it took two and a half years, um, but our first baby was born Christmas Eve in 1992. So I figured that's pretty auspicious, mm-hmm. even though I'm Jewish, didn't really make that, but anyway. Um, so yeah, so I graduated and just did home births for a while. And then when the birth center opened, um, then I always seemed to do a mix of home and birth center. Okay, so in the transition of the building of the birth center, were you working at the other birth center that you said you were at? Or what were you doing in between that time? Yeah, I was just building up clientele. I was waitressing. I mean, I was doing anything to bring money in because it takes a long time trying to make a practice. Um, And so, yeah, the birth center I worked in was as a student. So it wasn't mine and I wasn't, and it was far so it wasn't feasible to actually and she wasn't looking to hire anybody anyway but um but I just I did most of my preceptorship in that birth center with this one midwife and so I really saw that women I mean I heard a lot that they liked this idea of a birth center and that's so interesting now going (laughs) going into building your own birth center was there something specific you felt really passionate about offering because you got to create it. It was your your own from the foundation up. Or was there something, you know, culturally you thought, I want to try and change this or bring this to my community. I think when when you have somebody that's putting their own birth center, not assuming a birth center or working with a company, you really get to put your own touch to it. Was there something that you felt passionate about doing? Uh, I really felt like it had to be um, spacious. I really wanted it to be a and that was really important that there was a family room so that there could be people you might not want right in with you, but that they had a lovely space to go into and, um, and it's built on an arc. So it's, there's no sort of, um, it's just looks different when you're inside. It's got very high vaulted ceilings and lots of skylights and, um, and years later, maybe 15 years later, I did a remodel. I had a tub in there, um, that, was not really suitable for birthing. Water births weren't quite as popular in 1990 as they became. And so then I did a remodel and put in a, a really lovely big birthing tub and expanded the bathroom. So lots of people could be in the bathroom. And, um, but yeah, you know, I liked, it was, it's rural, it's in the woods. It's sitting in five acres of woods. I mean, we had lots of animal visitors, deer and chipmunks and squirrels and you know it it, I liked that it felt far away but was really just up the road from our local hospital and that sounds like Ina May's um Ina May's farm 
I remember reading her books <laughs> in midwifery school and thinking, I would love to go have my baby there, just on a farm in the woods with the deer and the chipmunks, like you said, just, it's very calming. Yeah. Nature is so soothing when you're going through those normal processes of life. Yes. I mean, really my heart is in home birth. I really um, prefer it, but, um, but I certainly felt and feel like I reached so many more families by having a birth center. And then, and many times if they'd have their first baby at the birth center, their second baby, they would have at home. Um, cause I had a two year old and it just seemed like, and now they'd done it once. And so it was like, but I remember, uh, uh, sorry. Oh no, I was gonna say you were offering both. So you were doing home birth, yeah. and offering the birth center and they could choose whichever. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And I never felt, I mean, I was, I always carried double equipment. So if they, I mean, they were, I'm sure you had that experience, you know, they're planning to come to the birth center and then suddenly it's the, uh oh, you know, I'm not, I can't get in the car and you're speeding down the road trying to get there before the baby. So, um, yeah, I always felt pretty flexible just to me. It, you know, I never did a volume where I had to say cut off some, you know, I, I cut off clients. So it always worked out that people could choose whenever. That's so great. Now, across the years you had the birth center, were you the only midwife or did you bring on a, another midwife at some point or what was the, the business model like? No, part of our, I always felt like part of our, um, the price we paid for being more successful and getting our names out there as licensed midwives was that, you know, in 1995, we had this great insurance commissioner and she felt like she was doing us this huge favor by mandating that we had to have malpractice insurance and um and she did that because the only way we could get insurance companies to even talk to us was if we had malpractice insurance and really i was against it but um we thought it was you know that the powers that be in the midwifery world thought it was a great idea and and for me that really marked a point at which um I suddenly had this bigger overhead. I mean, I had to do a certain number of births in order just to break even and um, malpractice insurance was expensive. And I was doing three, four births a month. It was a big month if I did five births. And then, you know, you had transfers and twins and different reasons people would transfer out. And and that really was for me a a harder time when midwifery became this much more of a business. I used to barter. I had a someone build me a set of stairs in exchange for their birth. And, and I just couldn't really do that anymore. So, um, yeah, so it be, just became a little bit different and, and a lot more expensive to practice by then. Can I ask you, um, did you ever have to purchase malpractice or did you choose to purchase malpractice insurance? Because you said you were against it. Was it a requirement for you have to keep practicing in the birth center? I'm sorry, was the, what was the question again? So did you ever end up purchasing the malpractice insurance mm -hmm. to keep practicing? I did. In fact, I, I, I um, bought it the first year it came out. Because I just did feel, I mean, I felt that, um, I mean, I certainly had people come to me and pay out of pocket, but who had private insurance that I couldn't take, but I knew it would open up many more people to midwifery care. And I never had, until 2018, I never worked with a partner. I always just was in solo practice. 
So what, what changed then, in 2018? Did you bring on a partner at that point? I did. I had a client who had babies with me and then went to midwifery school. And then I was her preceptor and, um, and I was really wanting to cut back and I was financially in a place by then that I could cut back. Um, and, um, and so she came on straight out of school and then really it was, um, we, uh, I like to say we broke up over COVID. Um, I felt very, um, clear that we had to disclose whether we were vaccinated or not to clients because we definitely had clients that wouldn't have cared and we definitely had clients that cared a lot and um and it became a very a sort of a flashpoint in our relationship of I I was definitely the senior midwife and she was um buying into the practice but I we weren't yet 50 50 and um and so you know it was a I totally respect that it was a decision of conscience, but it was for me a line that I I drew in the sand about disclosing we that we needed to be transparent, and especially when people asked us, I didn't I felt like they deserved to know, and then they deserved to decide if that was something that they were comfortable with, and and actually today I had tea with somebody who. Um, we delivered a few babies before we made this decision and uh, I made the decision and she was one that had been super cautious about not being around anybody who wasn't vaccinated and um, and then finding out that she was actually had two unvaccinated people at her home birth she was she was livid and she felt really like she we had betrayed her trust and so it it was awful but it was confirming to me that people did deserve to know I would have wanted to know and so anyway and now um she has a, her own um private home birth practice that's that's a really I think a good story both for a business partner and and also for what patients want out of their provider I think transparency has always been something that's a core tenant of midwifery and I think that patients tend to expect that from us so I think you, you too. And I certainly think like, I never told people my political beliefs. I mean, I don't think, I don't, I guess I don't believe it's total. I mean, if they asked me, I would say, but there were certain things in my private life that I did feel like something your business really. Um, but I did feel like when it directly impacted or could have a direct impact on their lives, then to me, there was no question that we needed to be, be open about it, but so. That's so interesting. So when you were um, running the birth center, people always like to know what the schedule is like. So what was a normal Monday through Friday? And then obviously births come whenever they come, but how many hours were you in clinic or doing home visits or what did your postpartum visit schedule look like? Tell us all those details. Well, when I first started, you know, I think I, I, I had three clients and they just got the best care in the world, you know, because they were my only three clients. And then the next year I had maybe seven clients. So it was actually probably four or five years before I had a, enough of a load to do more that to actually stop my waitressing. And also, um, so I was a big believer in home visits and for 20 years, um, I did a home visit every day postpartum, um, so I did seven home visits and then I would see the families at two weeks 
and then again at six weeks. And I learned so much in those just by coming in every day. I learned, you know, I, when someone had retained products, I just knew it because I'd felt so many uteruses every day that seven days that went on day seven, it was where it was. I was like, no, this is wrong. I mean, and so I know it's a luxury. I teach at the midwifery school uh, one. I mean, I lecture there on a, a class on newborn complications and maternal complications. And, and they're all like, wow, you know, our midwife, you know, nobody does that anymore. And it's not feasible. I got $90 to do prenatal care. I probably spent $130 driving to their homes every day, but it was, you know, it just, I loved it. I loved going to their homes. They loved it. You know, I picked up failure to thrive and I picked up fevers and you pick up things that, you know, especially with new moms, they don't know like, Oh, this baby seems pretty sleepy. Yes. Well, his blood sugar is dangerously low. And so, um, I didn't change that for many, many years, like I said, 20 or 25 years. And it was just, I couldn't, I couldn't find the time afterwards. So, so in my last 10 or 15 years, I did um, day one, day three and day five. And then if they needed more, I would come. But, um, but by the end I did, um, usually I did three clinic days, um, and I was, I'm an early riser. So I'd sort of, I'd rather finish early in the afternoon. And then I had two days to do home visits. And then if a birth would come, you know, I would just reschedule for whenever. And, um, and that was pretty much, yeah, pretty much the schedule. Cause I always scheduled an hour for every visit. Um, so you can't, you can only see eight, six or eight people in a day. And, um, and that I never, I never stopped that. I always did our visits and, um, and actually I'm just so programmed by the end. I just don't even think I could do any. <laughs> I, I mean, for a while I thought that's crazy. I should just do 45 minutes. Why? But I would always go over 15 minutes. So I was like, well, I guess I, my brain is programmed for an hour. I just can't stop now, but um, yeah. And, and, and then the greatest thing that happened was that I actually got this lovely woman to to work in my office. So I also did all the ordering supplies and filing birth certificates and all of the paperwork. And she came in and reorganized everything. And so I could just run off to a birth and say, hey, you know, could you call everybody and just reschedule them and it would be done. And that was that was huge because I'd be sort of watching the baby and trying to call people not to come because I wouldn't be there. And I know they were driving for 40 minutes. And so having having that office support was was really great. And I got someone, a, next, a past client to do my billing, which was the other godsend because I just hated the billing part. You know, when they didn't pay me, I would just take it personally and I would forget to fill a box. And then it was another eight weeks. Oh, it was awful. So turning over the billing and the sort of office stuff made my life a hundred times better. That sounds amazing. I was going to ask you, did you have some help in the office? But did you also have help with the birth? Did you have an assistant that would come regularly or how did that work for for the community? Yeah, it's I always had students from about, well, from about the first, well, the first years I did everything on my own. And it wasn't that, I know now it just sounds like an anathema that you go to births by yourself, but we all did. There just weren't that many midwives and there weren't any assistants and I wasn't qualified yet to take on a student and, um, but, but then eventually I had enough women in my community that had expressed interest um, or I would have a, a student. I, I didn't have a large practice and I counted 
heavily on my assistants or students. So I wasn't a site to take like first year students um, because I really needed them at births as well. Um, but I was a site for like third year students because I was happy to give them hands on and catch babies. And um, so over the years, I don't know, I probably had 20 students, if not more. Um, and then in my last years, um, I trained a couple of birth assistants and they, um, we didn't, we had a sort of a disastrous experience with a student. Um, and then we just decided we'll just have a little more control and um, train people that we knew from the community. So I. Oh, well, with all of that, how did, uh, I would say like raising kids and marriage and kind of your social life, how did you balance all of that? That's always a, it's always a juggling act with midwifery. I think everybody finds how they make it work, but I'm curious how you found that it worked for you. You know, I, I was just lecturing at the school and I, and one of the things I said is there's no balance. <laughs> I mean, you could look for balance. They're really, and I think it's almost a disservice in a way to think that you'll find it. It's another way to feel bad about yourself because it's your child's birthday. They're so excited and you have to go and you have to go. And so I I have a an incredible husband and his um, he was able to build a workshop on our property. So he was here and I had lovely, resilient children and and I remember hearing an older, more experienced midwife talk about her kids. And she said, when I have to go to a birth, my kids say, have a good birth, mama. And I thought, oh, that's what I, that's what I need to do. I need to, you know, there's not whining. It's like, you don't have to go. It's like, no, you know, yes, that's the reality is at your birthday, at Thanksgiving, wherever I have to go. So that solved a lot of issues, but you I mean, I'm looking back now as a retired midwife and I feel like, you know, it takes pieces of you. I mean, it it can't help but take pieces of you. And I'm, I was saying to my husband, oh, I'm having dreams again after 30 years because I went to sleep with half of my brain waiting for my pager to go off and then my phone to go off. And, and I think that you can't, I mean, for me, I couldn't compartmentalize completely. So, you know, if someone was in labor, like 90% of my brain was there waiting for her to call, checking in and, and 10% was with my family. And that's hard, you know, it's hard on everybody. So I'm grateful that they turned into lovely, caring adults and I'm still married and I love my husband and he's been a, a constant source of support and strength and and love and I um I'm glad that we are going to have this time however much time we have together um where I'm not my brain isn't in someone's living room you know waiting for the call to come and deliver the baby yes well it sounds like your partner husband still very supportive I think that to be a successful midwife you really do have to have a strong partner behind the scenes is there any wisdom you would give to people for how to manage that relationship I think everybody does it a little bit differently your, your relationship is what you make it but I do think that 
you have such wisdom and you understand what birth asks of you for such a long time that you could, you could pass some wisdom on to maybe some newer midwives coming out and they don't maybe know what they don't know yet about that work-life balance we said doesn't exist. Yeah. You know, the marriage thing, I, I, I mean, I say not really jokingly that I don't think anybody would have put bet money on our marriage when we first got married. And, um, and there were couples that we would see throughout our years here in the community. And we thought, well, they really have it together. I mean, they're communicating all the time. And then we'd hear, oh, they're getting divorced. You know, and you'd be like, how is that possible? And, you know, I don't know. It just seemed like my husband, he really had to be so giving those years. And, and it was hard for him in the beginning. You know, it, he was, I mean, especially once I started having my own clients and we'd make a dinner and, Pedro would go off and he'd be like, you're leaving now? And I'd be like, yeah, that's the deal. Like, I got to go. And, um, and you know, so it, it took a while for him to kind of really integrate what that meant for him and for us. And and I think marriages fall on that where, um, you know, he was willing to to be that person, to be that supportive person. And and be in the back and maybe not get, well, not maybe, not get 100% of my time, maybe ever in those years. And I think we took two vacations because it was so hard to find midwives who weren't working and weren't um, involved in something else. To, I mean, they had to come and live in my house because I'm on an island. They couldn't live where they lived. Um, and so... You know, the first few days I do what I called the pager clutch, right? Grab my, you know, <laughs> I'm on vacation, right? It's okay. So, um, you know, we, we, it's really him. He was just, could be that person. And I'm not sure if the roles were reversed. If I could have done that for 35 years, um, I like to think I could have, but you know, you don't, you don't know, but I'm so grateful and happy that he did and could and like I said with my kids you know I just I there couldn't be any guilting there could they just had to know this was my job and I I say that the community really helped raise my kids my I remember my son coming home from school one day and he said oh I saw Greta and she told me that you delivered her sister you know and so that even though I was away there was this context that they could put me in because we are a small community and my daughter came to births with me when she was little and, you know, so, um, but, you know, once it, we integrated this, have a good birth mom, <laughs> my daughter's 37. And until, you know, when I was still doing births, if I was on the phone with her and I, oh, I have to go so-and-so's in labor, have a good birth mom. <laughs> so they really, they really did integrate that into their, into their psyches. And, and that was super helpful because there's enough guilt about leaving your family and being away for hours and days um, and knowing that they supported me and understood that was huge. I think that might be my most favorite statement I've ever heard the have a great birth mama. <laughs> Every yeah. midwife needs to just implement that with their children. I think that that gives you a little seal of, okay, it's okay to leave and go pour into another family and my family will be here when I come back. Yeah. Now you got to stay in the same place and 
really have a long career in the same community. So what led you to the place where you, you said, I want to pull back my hours and then to eventually retire and where the birth center is still on your land, I'm assuming, but what is the status of the birth center now? Did somebody take over it or, or what is maybe the big question? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, you know, like many midwives and especially for 30 years of solo practice, I just let my own health go. And, and I, was finding that I was, you know, there was some fatigue issue. I mean, there were just things that I had let slide for so long that I was feeling like um, needed to get taken care of. And so I, um, and I was, you know, I was tired. My husband developed leukemia and, and thank goodness, thank goodness, it was in the years that I had a partner so I could go with him to chemotherapy. And I just, you know, when, when our partnership ended, um, you know, I just realized I'm so vulnerable being a so in solo practice again, that I just don't want it. I want to be there with him. I want to go to his visits. I, you know, I was 65. I'd been doing this for more than half my life. And, and I was, I, I wanted to leave before I ever got sued and I ever lost a baby at a birth. And I thought, this is it. Let's, <laughs> these two things are, have not happened. And it seemed like a good time. And I felt like I felt healthy enough. I'm physically active that I could have another career. And um, so the year that I decided to retire, I really put feelers out. I, I really wanted someone to take over the birth center. And unfortunately, two things were happening in the community that I live. One is that housing prices went through the roof, like many places during and post COVID. So we bought our house 37 years ago for $90,000. We have 10 acres, we have a studio and, um, and you know, the average price now is over $700,000. And, and because of that, um, there was also no, the rental market just went crazy and it was not unusual to find a very nice rental for eight or $900 a month. And now it was $2,000 a month and midwives, you know, I felt like putting in the ad, are you independently wealthy? You can come and just, so I'd had lots of lovely midwives come. And I remember someone saying, you know, I need a bigger, I have six kids. Like I can't spend $4,500 a month on rent and not, you know, I mean, so so I feel like um, I sort of fell, you know, we fell victim to that. There was just, and and the population of childbearing women was dropping. The school census was dropping. Um, we are also a Navy town. The north end of our island is a huge Naval Air Station. And as a licensed midwife, I was not able to take TRICARE insurance. They only cover certified nurse midwives. So there was, they, you know, there were several and they became the biggest population of women of childbearing age, other than the people, because nobody could afford to move here. I remember when I still had my partner, we had a month that we were super busy for us. I think we had like 12 or 15 births. And in the end, I think we had five because five of those families left They had because their lease was up and they couldn't find housing. And so, you know, we could really, I could really see the writing on the wall, my malpractice insurance that year doubled, even though, I mean, it wasn't because I I never had a claim. It was just, they found a new, there were so few companies 
offering that it, you know, it went from 14,000 to 24,000. And it was like, this is nuts. I mean, it, it just really broke my heart not to be able to see it being used, but I, you know, I don't know how young midwives start out, especially here in Washington state. I mean, it's, it's such an economic burden to, to start. And, um, so now it actually houses a labor and delivery nurse, a traveling nurse is using it while she's working at our local hospital. And then, um, so I built this birth center and then I built a, um, a clinic building, not attached. So I always felt like the birth center was a sacred spot. I only wanted families and birthing people in there. And so um, then I built a, a totally separate building that had like my clinic space where I would see people. And and um, and I had five other rooms, which I rent. So now I have a chiropractor and a esthetician and an acupuncturist and a therapist. So they now rent that clinic building. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And then people are always curious about salary. So you said the malpractice insurance, that's astronomical, $24,000 a year. $14,000 is a lot in a year. <laughs> and if you add up all of your licenses and your organization fees you know that's usually a couple thousand dollars a year but for malpractice on top of that that's a lot of money right at the yeah, I oh I was gonna say at the but, end of your practice how much were you taking home salary wise and then if you remember too right when you kind of started out maybe maybe at the five-year mark because you said it took a while to build up clientele what was your salary then and then what was your salary right before you retired yeah. Well, reimbursements um, in 1991 were pretty low. I think I charged a thousand dollars for everything. And then I think that we got reimbursed like from, I always kept my cash pay equivalent to what Medicaid paid. Cause I figure they pay the worst <laughs> and I just, the money part always bugged me. I hated the money part. Um, so whatever Medicaid paid, that's what I charged. And I, you know, overhead was very low those first 10 years, really. Um, so I, you know, if I charged a thousand, I mean, so I probably made two or three thousand dollars a month. And then I would buy Pitocin and I had one Doppler. And, you know, it was really my, I had advertising and a phone. And, but I would say, you know, I probably grossed that and netted at least half that, if not more. I didn't have to buy medication every month. And then when malpractice came in, um, there was also a slight increase in reimbursement. By the time I retired, I think Medicaid would pay something like $2,200 for everything. Sometimes private insurance was a bit more, 26 or 28. And the facility fee, so on top of the professional fee, I would get a facility fee for like a hospital for using the facility. And that... Um, when I, so it used to be like $663, which didn't really cover anything. I mean, it, it really was my home birth practice that kept the birth center going because, because it just didn't cover, I mean, to turn the lights on and to have a birth assistant, it was not, it was way more than $663. Um, but I got the professional fee and these, like I said, were often families that would never have considered home birth. So it was kind of a trade-off in that way. But, um, the when I left the facility fee got a bump and it was 1742 
Um, so I would get a professional fee of $2,200. If they had a birth center birth, I'd get the birth center fee of $1,742. And that just got bumped up um, after I retired to now $2,500. So in Washington State, if you own a state licensed birthing center, um, that's your facility fee. But as far as I know, the professional fee hasn't gone up in years. I mean, it has been pretty stagnant. So most of the midwives, there's three midwives now on Whitby on my island. None of them take insurance. None of them have malpractice insurance. It's cash pay only. And that also kind of breaks my heart because, you know, women with no financial resources no longer can have the birth that they want. Um, and that was always sad for me. That's been sad, but I understand it. I mean, you need to make $5,000 a birth, you know, I mean, that's what you deserve to get. And, you know, for them to do two births, it took me five or six births to do, to get that salary. So I, I don't know, a lot of newer midwives who take insurance are adding on something called a midwife fee, which is a non-refundable, I don't even know how much it is, a thousand to $500 because they get paid so low that it's it's hard for them to make ends meet. So by the time I was making money, I was, um, you know, I, I really struggled. I mean, I had to do five births a month or four births a month because the months I didn't, I was in the hole. Yeah, I, um, I think there's kind of two things I always think about. One, that most women just don't have the cash to pay, like they might want that birth, but they just don't have the three or four or $5,000 to pay for it because they're trying to pay for their groceries. And then right. I remember I had a home birth last fall and uh, I think that I paid a fee of maybe $600 on top of what my other fees were. That was what my specific midwife charged. And she, she basically said, this is to cover all the things so that we can keep our lights on. Well, I know, and, and the, the transfer fee, which is just this disgusting idea, but so, you know, of course, the births that transfer tend to be births that you spent a long time. You know, the most common reason I would transfer was the baby's not coming and you've given it, you know, 48 hours and they're still at six centimeters. And you'd, you know, my my bottom line was we we want this to be a vaginal birth. And if we wait any longer and I bring you in and you look, half dead or your baby's tachycardic, you're going to have a C-section. So, but usually it was many hours. And when you brought someone in, then instead of getting the $2,000 that you would get for delivering the baby, you got $200 for the labor, <laughs> which often was like a dollar now. I mean, it was nothing. And so, you know, unfortunately we saw midwives that were not transporting in time because that was in their brain like if you don't deliver I get nothing for all of this time I've spent with you and then a lot of midwives in Seattle started saying like if you want me to stay with you when we transport and you know if we have this situation it's going to be a thousand dollars and you know I never instituted that I always felt like sometimes you walk in and two minutes later you have a baby like it always evened out for me. Like, is that worth $2,000? I don't know. I barely had time to get my gloves. <laughs> she cleaned up after herself. I mean, it was just, so it, to me, it was a wash, but you know, midwife starting out today, I can certainly see what they're up against. And it's terrible. It's terrible for clients. It's terrible for mental health of providers. It's just, 
it's rough. Now you said you're teaching at the school. So tell me a little well, bit. I just like oh, you lecture. Okay. Well, that's teaching. Even if you might not be oh, yeah. full time, <laughs> um, you're teaching in complications. Is that something that you're passionate about specifically? You're obviously knowledgeable about it. Uh, but when you get to choose lectures, do they kind of call and say, Hey, you're, you know, wisdom is needed here. Or was, how did you fall into that? Tell me more about that. I think the woman that taught the class, I knew her for many years and, um, and she, I don't know if we had it. We used to do peer review together and she started teaching and I thought, I'd love, you know, that. And then one day she just said, Oh, we're doing this maternal complications. Would you like to come and lecture? And, and I have this case that, um, was probably had every obstetrical emergency known to man. She's like, Oh, tell that, you know, and then you see these students are just like frozen by the end of this story, you know, where nobody died, but it was just one thing after another. And, so now she brings me in, you got that case? Yes, we'll tell that case. And then I do a day of newborn complications. And I'll tell you, I just, um, this last class of students were just wonderful. They were so engaged. And I've, I've gone to classes where I felt like, hmm, this, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> if this is the next generation of midwives, you know, I'm not so sure. But um, I mean, classes, I guess, have personalities like, individuals and so this last class they were just lovely and um really eager to learn and so I go for those two when they're doing you know they bring in um as many experienced midwives as they can and and they get to you know present cases and then they just get to sort of ask questions about anything really and um and it's always lovely I really have such a great time and and I've thought about teaching. I've just not as uh, most schools are online now, and I'm not probably as computer literate as I should be. And so, um, and I also don't have a master's degree. Now, most of the programs in Washington State are advanced degrees, so that you have to have a, a degree, the same equivalent degree to the students you're teaching, which is a master's level. And I didn't really want to go back to school just to be able to do that so well you you retired for a reason so what are you and your husband doing in in retirement are there vacations you have planned or anything in particular you're passionate huh. spending your time doing yeah well you know it's interesting because when I when I, I it's been a year my last baby was born a little over in August end of August last year and um and I promised myself I wouldn't do anything for six months which was harder than you think because someone was like, you know, started talking about what I could do to help them. Like if I ran the birth center and they, and all of a sudden I was like, Oh wait, that's work. No, no, I don't want to do that. So I, um, I kept that promise and I, um, I didn't feel burnt out from midwifery, but I felt burnt out from everything else around midwifery, the business side, the, even the, the type of clients I saw 30 years ago were really different. They were so excited to have a home birth. They just wanted to make sure, basically didn't show up like drunk. I mean, they had very low expectations. And then this newer generation, it's, um, you know, it's, there's just, it's a different group of women. They are much more, um, don't know there's just something about some of them are very sort of self-centered it's really it's a different relationship and I was getting a little bit um 
my husband's ringtone, a little bit burnt out by the expectations. I mean, thank goodness I had 30 years to build boundaries because I would see these women and they basically wanted me to guarantee that this would be a transcendent experience and the best experience of their life. And, you know, and their needs for me far exceeded what I felt was my job. I wasn't their therapist. I wasn't their partner. And, and I just found myself drawing these boundaries over and over and over. And, um, and then I had a client who was particularly needy and I had a long history with her husband's family. I delivered many babies for that family. And, and long after our relationship was ended, I would get pages from her two in the morning, three in the morning. And we had this sort of, I finally just had to go to her house and say, you know, we don't have this relationship anymore. You know, we're done. If you have a question about your baby, you have to ask your pediatrician, you know, and if it's something that can wait until morning, that whole thing. And then she just wrote this really awful review on social media, which was just like, when I just, and I called her and I just said, this is not okay with me. You know, this is not okay. And she actually ended up retracting it. But, but I remember thinking, that's it. You know, I don't, I don't want to have that in my brain as well as, as everything else that you worry about. So that. I needed to find out if I still loved midwifery. So now I was like down on the business side, sort of down on the clients a little bit. Um, but I didn't, I mean, I used to gauge, am I burnt out by giving the groupie strep talk, which I've probably given 5,000 times. And I was, ne it was never not interesting to me. Like I never didn't want to impart that knowledge and have the discussion. And that sort of became my bar, you know, if I just was like, Oh, God, I have to talk about this again, then I was for sure gonna quit. But um, but now I'm going to do volunteer work, because I feel like that's where my heart is to just give, you know, just to be able to have some skills that maybe can be useful or learn from other people. And so I'm um, so my husband, and I just our son and our only grandchildren live in Barcelona in Spain. So we just got back from two weeks in Spain. And and we'll do traveling. My husband's a woodworker and he just loves his shop. He's a tinkerer. He, so he's semi-retired, I guess, but he's doing a project now. And so he has a little less flexibility, but I think next June, I'm gonna go to Uganda and work in a birth center there. And I've been accepted to work with a group called Global Midwife Response. They have a clinic in Nairobi and also are looking for midwives to go to Bangladesh. So I feel like I wanna, I want to see if it's still there for me. Like I want to be in that situation where um, I'm not charging anybody and I'm not on a clock and I can just do whatever they need or learn whatever I can. And, and so we'll see. Cause then I, I think I would do more of that if it's fulfilling for me. That's amazing. We might have to bring you back for part two and you can tell us about <laughs> international midwifery and volunteering. It might just renew your, your love for birth in a whole different way. I think birth in different yeah. cultures does that for me because I always tell people birth is the same around the world. It's very, it's very different culture to culture, but the actual act of birth, we have millions of yeah. day. That's amazing. Yeah. It, yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. Okay. So right now I'm, um, uh, yeah, I'm just uh, happy, <laughs> sleeping a lot. I think um, for the listeners, her birth center 
you did your last postpartum visit in October of 2022, right? Last birth was about a year ago. So it's been almost a full circle, one year since officially retired. Not officially because yeah. you go do this wonderful volunteer work. Yeah, I think I, um, I mean, I'm so grateful to me. Midwifery. I'm so grateful to the, my midwifery community. I mean, they, as a solo practitioner, all those years, I counted and depended on other midwives. If I got two calls, which seemed to happen within minutes of each other, two women in labor, and one was at home birth and the other was somewhere else. And, you know, I can't tell you the number of times a, a, a midwife would graciously just come and sit in my clinic so that if she needed to attend this other birth, she would be there at just their wisdom, their collective wisdom. I mean, clients come and go, but for me, my sister midwives became so important in my life. I mean, we used to joke, we had peer review every quarter and it was the best day and the worst day of your life. Cause the best day that you got to see all these women that you love, we were all women identified as women. And, and then the worst day, cause everybody bought, brought their horror stories and you just be like, Oh my gosh, what happened to you? That's all. And then we had this running joke that someone would have something terrible happen and, and someone in that group would have that same thing happen sort of their very next birth. And so it was this sort of, you know, we always had to end on happy stories, but, um, but it was, a, a, it, you know, being a midwife is and was the defining love of my professional life. And I just feel so grateful that I was able to be in a small community. I see people everywhere. You know, I, my kids would be like, we're not going to the store with you. You get caught in a chat in the grocery, you know, in the meat aisle. It's like an hour. So, you know, today I saw, went to the grocery store and two of the checkers were ex-clients. I got to see one of them in their, their daughter in her prom dress. So that was 18 years ago. And the other starting, her son is starting kindergarten. And so it's really, it's, it's been the greatest joy of my life. That's amazing. As far as wisdom for new midwives, I think coming into the field of midwifery now as a new midwife, it's much harder. We talked about a lot of different reasons for why it's harder, but what advice would you give the the midwives that are either thinking about jumping into the midwifery profession or to those students that are right in the thick of school? I think a lot of them, they their training got stuck in the pandemic and they are in pipelines that are slow moving and they just, they're, they seem to be losing hope. That's what I see when I talk to them. So what, what wisdom or advice would you give to the new, new midwives that are thinking, okay, my journey is really hard. Is it, is it going to, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is really hard. And I think that um, you're, you're entering a life of service and it's the highest calling for me, but it's the most demanding. And if you think about it that way, then I feel like, you can under, you can justify a lot of things. I mean, you are answering to a calling and you are, I mean, I'm Jewish and on the Sabbath, the only time you can break the laws of the Sabbath is to save a life. And so the highest order is to save a life. And to me, every time I went to a birth, I had that potential to, to make a difference. Birth is safe. It didn't happen very many times, but, um, but to keep that in your mind, you know, you are really performing this, this service to your, to your clients, to your community. Um, and, and I would say, you know, to try to find a partner or I, I was very isolated. I live on an Island. I have a ferry that stops running in the evening. And then, 
And then there's a bridge, but it's hours to get to this bridge to get to me. And, and in retrospect, you know, economics reared its ugly head and there was never enough births for two midwives, but you know, if at all possible, it, it is healthier to have a partner and to be able to really have time off and to, you know, spend time with your family. Um, I, I feel like that's a, can be a major cause of burnout if you're in solo practice. It's a lot to shoulder. And if you don't have to do it that way, it's uh, I think it's a better way. I think that's great advice. As far as precepting, you sounded like precepting was something you were passionate about, but you precepted a number of students. I think preceptors also struggle with some burnout. Speaking of burnout, any tips you have for preceptors, especially those that are, are feeling that burnout? I think sometimes midwifery is hard. We know that, but sometimes it's really hard to teach. Yeah. You know, when I felt like I wasn't going to take another student, I actually took this course on precepting um, that was offered for free through the Seattle Midwifery School. And it was really enlightening. And um, and it really helped me um, because it said people who are experienced midwives make the worst preceptors because you're just thinking in your mind. I've seen this 10 times and you're not saying it. So your student has no idea and what's going on. And so I think I was sort of feeling burnt out because they weren't, just weren't getting it. And then I realized, oh, well, I'm not saying anything either. So, um, so that helped a lot, you know, to really try to remember where they're at. And also that my own failing was that I didn't feel the need to explain because it was obvious what was going to happen next. Um, but I, I also feel like there was a, there was a period of time and I haven't been a preceptor now for a while, but where I felt like the midwifery schools were so in need of students that there wasn't really good discernment about who actually was gonna make a good midwife. Um, and we, I mean, I had students that I just felt were not, whether it was they couldn't take the book knowledge and actually turn it into their hands, physically doing what they needed to do, um, down to you know really pretty significant emotional blocks to being able to, put yourself aside and deal with a hemorrhage. And um, and so, you know, I just got to the point where, you know, after six months, if I felt like, or four months, a student was not, not gonna make it, I just said, no, you know, I just feel like there's only so much I could carry a student um, before they had to either go out, go or really get in line and and start, you know, performing. So, um, yeah, I, I think as everything has gotten harder and, um, you know, and I, every time I had a new student, you know, there were definitely clients that they didn't want the new person when you're in solo practice. It's such a, it's such a personal relationship. Um, but then I really learned that I needed that student. So I had to really build that student up and, and it was a priority that they were in there. And I, you know, very rarely would, you know, not be able to convince someone that, to bring a student in into their care. So I've had that yeah. sometimes. Um, I practice mainly in the hospital setting, but we have student midwives and I always introduce us as the midwifery team. I say, you get a midwifery team to take care of you. you know, yes, they're a student. I'm your seasoned midwife, but we're here with the same passion and knowledge to take care of you. 
Okay. Um, let's see. The only other thing I was going to ask as far as resources or um, any books or apps or social media, people are always looking for something that might be specific to Washington or specific to your community that is, is promoting birth. You talked about spiritual midwifery, which I love, but anything that you're like, this is my favorite resource, or this is the one thing that nobody knows about. And I just want to promote it. Oh gosh. That comes to mind. It doesn't no, have I to always specific. You know, I just always volunteered. I volunteered everywhere. And I just felt like I volunteered, you know, from Planned Parenthood to crisis pregnancy centers. Cause I felt like, um, the more you give away, it'll come back to you. I really believe that. And so I just did everything that was happening in my community. If there was a fair, I would be there. If there was a, a lecture that, you know, the hospital was doing something, I would show up. And, and I do feel like I don't know about being in big cities. And I'm assuming that that's not quite as workable when you have a city of hundreds of thousands of people. But, you know, for me, that really proved to be the greatest asset to my business was to put myself out there and and to volunteer. So if someone needed a anything, you know, and they didn't have funds or they weren't set up on insurance, I mean, I would just say, that's fine, you know, just come in or whatever they would need. And and I just feel like that also, you know, gave the like I called my practice Green Bank Birth Center. And so I wasn't my name wasn't in it, but so the Green Bank Birth Center became synonymous with a place you could go that, you know, if you needed something to have, if you needed help, like you were, didn't have a doctor yet and you were spotting and you just it was what needed to know what was going on, like you could go there. And so many times that they ended up staying or coming back with another baby or so I wasn't very savvy social media wise, you know, I did, we did have a Facebook page, but I could never keep up with the putting the births on and getting permission. <laughs> So I just feel like most of the time you're your best advertisement. You are the person that they're looking for or, you know, they want to meet you and see if you're a good fit. So just the more you put yourself out there, the better. I think that you, you have this beautiful story where you served your community and then the community came back and has served you too. And it's just been this beautiful dance that you've done over that that 30 years I'm so excited to see where you go I want to follow you internationally will you keep us updated so that you can come back and tell us all these wonderful stories yes <laughs> yes well I hope it all works out. thank you so much for sharing your story with us oh Jamie it was my pleasure thank you you're excellent interviewer I'm a little was a little nervous and you put me at ease and threw me out so I appreciate that now um is the birth center still open for somebody to come in and to potentially take over are you still looking for somebody to possibly come run it or assume it I don't know if your plan was to sell it or if you were gonna co-own it but well, I originally thought to sell it and then I got an estimate on what it would be worth. And that was like, oh, that's crazy. But um, yes, yeah, so I am keeping the license active because in Washington state, if you let your birth center license lapse, then if someone wants to come in and uh, reopen, they have to actually retrofit and do everything up to current standards. I was the second or third birth center licensed in the state of Washington. So I'm sure there would be a lot of money that would need to go into it to bring it up to 
whatever standard it is. Like now you have to have a, a wall dividing your dirty from your clean. Back then you just had to have a separate sink. And so, so I am, I figure that's my um, contribution to the future is that if I pay this every year, maybe someone will come who wants a rural practice. Um, I don't know, who's Remember. independently wealthy. Independently wealthy. I was going to say, we just need that independent wealth to factor in. Yeah. And we got it. We got it. Yeah. Crazy. Well, I wish you good luck with all of your travels. Enjoy every moment. I can't wait to hear. We're going to come back for part two sometime in the future and hear about everything you're doing with your volunteering. Thank you, Jamie. Well, okay. you have a good day. Yeah. God bless. Okay. Thank you. Bye. All right. Thanks for listening. And I hope you guys will tune in again next time. Remember, you can email me at journey to midwifery podcast at gmail.com. And I'm on Facebook and Instagram uh, as journey to midwifery podcast. Send me your suggestions. Or if you'd like to be on the podcast, I would love to hear from you. Until next time. Thank you.